0: Taste of it. Other than just right now. It's not a rhetorical question, but it is one I don't want you to answer openly because this morning we're going to deal a lot with the ideal of prayer. We've been talking about um persecution and hard times and how do we persevere and, and what does the scripture tell us and, and why would God give us the answers in his book if he doesn't want us to use them? I mean after all it is an open book test and we are told of what's coming and the answers are there and so this morning we're going to continue that and and i did a little research this week and uh, one of the uh, uh, greatest scholars in the protestant movement was martin luther if anybody knows who martin luther was uh, i can't give you all the dates somewhere around 15 something or another but martin luther is is given one of these he's he's given the honor of this quote up here and and it says uh, we got a picture of him up here somewhere. I don't know if it's actually him or not. They didn't have photos back there. But Martin Luther said this. He says, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. Now, here's the thing. I, most scholars don't think he actually what said that. They don't feel like he would say that. Everything else he writes doesn't really just align with that. However, he's been attributed with this because of his measure of faith. and And what... What this, this statement basically says, and what Martin Luther kind of sums up a little bit, is I'm going to keep on working each and every day as if Christ is never coming back, uh, but just in case he does come back tomorrow, I'm going to be ready. And so I'm going to go ahead and plant my apple tree, or whatever my tree is, because if he doesn't come back in 100 years, I'm going to pick apples on it, and the next generation is going to pick apples from it, and they're going to have something to eat. But if he does come back tomorrow, I'm not going to need those apples, because I'm going to be, be it with him forever in heaven, and I'm going to be pulling fruit from the tree of life. Uh, every month a different fruit in season, right? And so whether he said it or not, I think it's important for us to kind of look at this statement a little bit and just understand a little bit about what is the necessity of preparation if, it, if it's not actually going to happen. And if, it's, if, if what's bad is not actually going to happen, then why do we care about anything at all? Why do we even bother? Why do we even spend time preparing for anything? My kids both live in college towns, and uh, we live in the suburbs uh, of of, of a major metroplex. And when you you drive through many of our neighborhoods, you're going to see the fences are in good repair. You're going to see that the homes are painted up nice. You're going to see that for the most part, there are certain standards to the way we live that are completely opposed to the same standards that college kids live in. And so when I go to a college town and I see yards aren't mowed and fences laying over and all the screens, I don't know what the deal is with college kids and screens. None of the screens are actually on the windows or hanging off or they're broken or whatever. Next time you go to a college town, you just drive through where the students live. You'll know very easily. And and I don't know, maybe it's the kids are saying, I'm only going to be here for a couple of years, then I'm out of here. I don't own the thing, and so why take care of it, right? Now, some of you raised those children. So this is your fault, they, they behave that way when they're not here because you taught them how to do that do you mom dad you take ownership of that <sighs> i know you're like no i taught my kid right they've chosen differently right so i've got them off the page no but nonetheless we still prepare our kids for things whether they do or don't happen or not my kids have uh, we have AAA because i have two kids that are far away and dad can't be there every single time they have a, an automobile issue right and it was actually a gift from their grandmother whenever they went off to college that's what she wanted to make sure they were okay i on the other hand are like no for my daughter she's blonde haired blue eyes there's got to be a boy somewhere that would just do anything for you if you batted your eyes right you know come on and for my son i'm like dude seriously you got an iphone look it up on youtube you can figure that out right we prepare for things whether they happen or not now i want to talk to you about peter for a moment because we've been in the book of first peter and today we're going to be in first peter chapter four and if you want to turn that go ahead and do so but I want to tell you a little bit about Peter, because here's the thing about Peter and the disciples. They spent three years with Jesus, and he was teaching them over and over and over and over again. And many times they would go, what is he talking about? I don't understand what he's talking about. What does he mean he's not going to be with us forever? Isn't he going to be the new king? Isn't he going to, aren't we going to march into to Jerusalem and take over this place? And, and everybody else who's not been with Jesus or don't believe in him, they're going to be the ones with a problem? I mean, they're actually the ones who are not prepared, but here we are. And yet Jesus would just kind of shake his head and go, you knuckleheads, I'm only going to be with you for a short time. Would you please catch on? And they didn't do it. And we saw firsthand evidence of that with Peter whenever he was uh, in the garden with Jesus. And, and they came and they, they arrested Jesus. And Peter took off. And three times Peter denied him that night, just as Jesus had predicted would happen. And so it was fitting that if he denied Jesus three times, that Jesus would have to restore him in a three-step process. And so the the day that the boys are out doing back to what they used to do they were out fishing all the disciples were out there except for, for maybe thomas we don't know if he's with them or not and all the disciples were out there fishing and john says it's the lord and peter puts on his coat and jumps into the water and he is just hightailing it for the shore because he's going to go stand before jesus the resurrected christ at this point and he, he put on his best normally you take clothes off to jump into the water and he put on his cloak and so now he's swimming for the shore and jesus and peter and they sit down and they have a conversation And three times, Jesus restores him. He says, if you love me, if you love me, if you love me, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And he's reminding him over and over. And so so this is important because what Jesus is saying is, I prepared you, and you weren't ready for me to go, and it happened, and you weren't ready for that. And so I planted the apple tree, it bloomed, and you didn't bother to eat from it. And now you find yourself confused. Not sure what's going on. John chapter 21, we see a good conversation between jesus and peter and this is what jesus says truly truly i say to you when you were young peter you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted but when you are old you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go this he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify god and after saying this he said to him follow me you know here's the thing Here's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the only man to lay his life down and pick it back up by his own authority. And he looks right at Peter and he goes, hey, I'm going to tell you how you're going to die. You used to make all your own decisions and your own choices and do what you wanted to do, but I'm going to tell you how you're going to die. Someone's going to lead you to a cross and they're going to stretch your hands out and you're going to die of crucifixion just like I did. And Peter, I want you to follow me. You know, on some levels, that could be a very morbid, scary story. But I think for Peter, this was actually exactly what he needed to hear. Hey, Pete, I'm going to give you a preview so that anything that comes your way from now until the time they nail you to that cross, you shouldn't be surprised by. But I want you to choose to follow me. I want you to choose to do so. You know, believe it or not, this is exactly the same call that Christ has on each and every one of us. And while we may not be called to crucifixion, we are called to lay our lives down for the sake of the cross itself, for the salvation that was given to us through those three nails, and we do so by following him. And it's actually one of the things that we say a whole lot about, but, but, but we don't do real well. Now, Peter had this great advantage that I think we have as well, because we actually have more of Scripture than what even Peter had at his access at all the time, to see the God of the Bible and the stories that he tells us. And so when God called out to Peter and he said, follow him, what he's saying is, Pete, let me help you with this. Let me help give you the right outlook so that you can produce the right outcome." Because that's what all of us really want, right? We want knowledge of the future. We want to know how things are going to turn out. We want to know that we're on the edge of making a decision how it's actually going to turn out because that may cause me not to do something a certain way or it may cause me to do something differently because I know how it's going to turn out. Here's what Peter knows. Peter knows he's going to die for the sake of Christ, but he knows he's going to be with him forever and ever. And when he was told the first time that he was going to deny him, Peter did not listen. Now, denial is nothing compared to death, now is it? When you look at the two of those, Peter is told, you're going to die me three times. No, Jesus, I'm never going to do that. And he did so. Peter, you're going to go to the cross and die. Okay, Lord, you got it. The thing I want to share with you this morning is something that I have believed in my heart for a long time, and I see it over and over and over and over again. Just as Peter had the understanding of what the outcome was, it gave him the right outlook, and so it it allowed him to have the right attitudes that produced the right behaviors. And I believe now, as I've always believed, that our attitudes shape our behaviors. How we feel about something dictates how we actually do it or not. How, we, how we're motivated to do something because what our thoughts are, because what our beliefs are, what our convictions are, actually translate into our actions. That doesn't mean we can't do things, but there's a difference between doing things and doing things with excellence. It's a, a difference between doing things because they need to be done and doing things because we want to do them. It's that right attitude shapes those right behaviors. And so I just want to challenge you with that this morning because what Peter gets to in chapter 4 is just the reality that our our attitudes are necessary for strength in hard times. And we need to have the right attitude just like Peter did. Because here's Jesus telling him straight up, you're going to be taken to a cross and you're going to be nailed to that cross and you're going to die. I'm not going to tell you when that's going to happen, but until it does, Peter, you need to have the right attitude because you need to be out there telling others about the salvation that is offered to each and every person who will take that, that has been guaranteed to you, Peter, and that you've accepted if you decided to actually follow me. And that's what Peter did. And so during this time this morning, I want us to, to look at, at our attitude shape our behaviors, but I want us to see why does the attitude of Christ give us strength in hard times? I think this is actually something that we miss far too often. And this morning, I want to try to make the argument for you. I want to try to open your eyes and help you to understand that Jesus, being fully God and fully man, had choice. And in those choices, he had attitude that allowed him to accept the outcome because God himself had told him what the outlook was. And he knew how he was going to have to respond to this. And even Jesus, although sinless, still had challenges sometimes. To figure out if he was going to have the right attitude in following what god wanted him to do especially death on a cross for no purpose whatsoever and so there are four things that i see that that we can develop the attitude of christ and the first one is that that christ had an attitude of absolute hatred for sin now we don't often think about that and we usually don't put the word hatred anywhere involved with jesus And I think we're wrong for that because if Jesus didn't hate sin enough for for that attitude to dictate certain actions, then what did he actually do? And if we don't hate sin enough to let that dictate our actions, then we're not following Jesus and becoming more like him, and that's what he called us to do. This wasn't just a specific call to Peter. It's for all of us. Jesus had an attitude of absolute hatred for sin. And so read with me in the first few verses of of chapter 4, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It says, Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. What Peter is calling out is he's saying that as we just kind of finished the last section of, of chapter 3, Peter is calling out and saying, since this is how the Gentiles behave, since this is how people are in love with the world, since people are doing all the things that satisfy them according to the pleasures of the the flesh, you ought to have an attitude that has an absolute hatred for sin because it was Jesus who had that same attitude. And because his attitude wasn't enough that dictated him to have some measure of action, it was Jesus who said, I'm not only going to not like sin, I'm not only going to hate sin, I'm going to do something about it. Now, how many of you can say the same thing about the sin in your life? Hey, I, I don't like the way of behave. Paul wrestled with this. I, I, I don't like that I do these things, but I still do them. But I'm actually thankful that God's given me this thorn in the side of my flesh so that it may be a reminder to me of his goodness. Now, I'm not saying all of us are just signing up for persecution and bad things are happening, but, but if we don't have the right attitude regarding sin, then we won't have the right actions regarding sin. And if our attitude is such of permissiveness or that's just how things go or that's just a, a little white lie like we talked about last week, then our attitude is going to shape the wrong behavior. I mean, First John, John 3 8 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. There was no other reason for Jesus to actually come to this earth except to defeat the devil that we cannot defeat and to give us rescue from this world that's designed to kill us. Now this world was created to glorify God. But when sin came into the world and everything fell apart, the world closed in on its creation. And we became worldly in such a way that we elevated ourselves and have the wrong attitude. Just think what Jesus would have done if he would have came back and said, you know what, I have the right attitude about this, but I only like some of these people, and so I'm only dying for some of the people, not for all the people. I don't believe that to be true at all. I think Jesus died for everybody. Just as one man brought sin and death into this world, one man brought salvation for all who would receive it. Jesus had the right attitude from the very beginning because his father said, in the end, we're going to win this thing. But we want to win this thing with as many people as as possible. And the only way we're going to do that is perfect, sinless, spotless lamb. You're going to have to go get nailed to that cross. And you're going to have to have the right attitude about it that dictates your actions, and people are going to have to watch this in you. If you've ever seen a lamb get slaughtered, which I have, you'll see that many times they'll take a lamb by the chin and they'll lead that thing anywhere. And they'll lay it down. They don't have to tie it up. They don't have to do all these other things that you've got to do with other animals to kill it. They just lead that thing peacefully, and it goes humbly because it's at the hands of its master, and that's what Jesus did. Now just think. Somebody who did not deserve to die went to a cross for you and for me because he had the right attitude that dictated his actions. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2 says, "But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. so if you think that you've got the right attitude about sin let me tell you something if you're still committing those sins you don't now anybody who says that they have no sin they're liars and anybody who's caught in a habitual sin they haven't fully given themselves over but sometimes what happens is that our minds get so confused and so uh, rewired that we don't understand that we're so permissive about sin that we miss out on the reality that we just excuse it and we have the wrong attitude about sin which shapes the behaviors to be wrong too and so we let things slide we let things go What Jesus understood and the right attitude that Jesus had regarding sin was he understood what sin did on a divine level. We only understand what sin does to us on a personal, physical, right-now level. Do you believe that sin actually separates you from your Creator? Do you believe that the relationship that you have with your Creator, God, is all that it can be and possibly could be? Or do you believe that the sin... The violation of God's law, not just for the purpose of following rules, but for the purpose of building the relationship with your Creator. If you have the right attitude about that, your actions are going to dictate that. I believe my wife loves me. That's why I lie to her every chance I get. It doesn't work that way. I can't take her for granted and then expect her to still trust me. But yet, each and every day, we take God's grace and His mercy and His forgiveness for granted because we have the wrong attitude regarding sin in our lives we only see how it may harm us or hurt us or destroy us or not benefit us for the time but we don't see how it truly divinely pulls us apart from our creator jesus saw that so much that he said i'll go i'll go down there and i'll figure this out for you i'll do what needs to be done because my attitude for a hatred of sin is not as strong as my attitude of love for my creation that's good news the second thing that, that we see in the attitude of Christ is that Christ had an attitude of patience for the lost. Isn't that good news? I mean, when you just think about that for a second, Jesus had an attitude of patience for you and for me. He had an attitude of patience towards us in such a way that he didn't just wipe us out. As as Jim Carrey said, smite me, almighty smiter, in one of those crazy movies here. Jesus instead had an attitude of patience towards us because what he realized was is that that as he said it from the cross, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they do. He doesn't call us stupid. He doesn't call us moronic. He doesn't call us foolish, but he does call us ignorant to the truth. He calls us to to say that that the truth has been revealed to to them and they've chosen to reject it for whatever reason. The Pharisees, the most knowledgeable of knowledgeable people, had hard hearts and they couldn't satisfy the truth because the truth was only what they wanted it to be, not what it was outside of them, them. And that's what our problem is sometimes. And if we don't have a patience for the lost, then we have lost what the patience that, that, that our Creator has for us because we were all sinners separated from God at one point. Look what verse 4 through 6 says in 1 Peter 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Romans 5 8 is very clear to us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us while we were still in our sinful state, while we were still rejecting God, while we were still accepting all the bad things of this world and participating in the bad things of this world and making us feel better about it because we either had an audience or somebody rooting us on and cheering us on, while all those things were happening, Christ said, you know what? They don't know what's going on, but I love them anyway, and I'm still going to go to the cross and die for them because I have patience for those who are sinful. I have patience for them because I love them. I have patience for them because it's a measure of compassion. I have patience for them because even though they're veiled, as 2 Corinthians tells us, they're veiled to the gospel. They can't see the good news of the truth of the gospel. I'm going to continue to try. I'm going to do all that I can with the right attitude of love and patience and mercy and compassion for them to try to convince them to have a hatred for sin, to have patience for the lost. And why is Peter writing this down? Why did he write this to the, to the five churches in the provinces at the time? Because he recalls that time when he's standing in the garden with Jesus and somebody's coming, and what, what happens? Peter pulls a knife out and cuts this dude's ear off. His name was Malchus. And Jesus healed Malchus, by the way, but he looked at Peter and he says, put that thing away, I'm not leading a rebellion here. What he's trying to say to him is, is Pete, I'm not saying you have to be a pacifist, and I'm not saying you, that, that violence is the answer, because it's not. But what I am saying is this, that, that, that man Malchus is coming to arrest me because he was told to do so by his commanders. And he followed orders. And to be perfectly honest with you for a second, Pete, he's better at following orders than what you are. And you should have a lot more compassion for him than to cut his ear off, coming to do what has to be done for the sake of all humanity. It's actually one of those untold stories in the Bible that we don't even think about, that even though Malchus got his ear cut off, what was really happening was that Jesus was trying to coach Peter into the understanding that this world is lost and they are going straight to hell. They need salvation and it has to happen this way. And we're going to have to help them understand that all the things of their life don't just get changed automatically. That it's going to be a process. But that process starts by showing them love and grace and compassion and mercy. And that Peter and Bob and Doug and whoever else is sitting out here today. Sorry brother, didn't mean to call you. Whoever you are, faith is crazy. It's insane. It does not make sense at all. And so if we're running around being impatient with lost sinners, then we're actually being very judgmental in what we're doing. And we're missing the reality that there was a God who was very patient with us, who didn't overlook, but he saw through all of our nonsense and all of our lies and all of our sin and all of our deceit and everything that we try to hide from everybody else. And he says, I love you so much, and I'm going to just keep on. I'm going to keep on. I'm not going to change my character. I'm not going to change my process. I'm not going to change the outcome. But I really want to change your attitude. I really want to change your heart. And for those in this time that that are, are getting this letter for the first time, as well as for us today, it is impossible for us to look at the world and say, you know, I wonder why those people don't get us Christians. I mean, after all, we're nice. We're kind. We're not judgmental. I mean, we're actually pretty permissive to a lot of things they believe and live in, in this world. I, I don't know why they don't like us. Let me tell you something. It's because we are not compassionate. And you're not compassionate from pr- from a point of view of going, I may lose my standing, I may lose my credibility, I may lose this argument. Look, I don't care if you lose your entire reputation for the cause of Christ. None of that matters if that person's going to go to hell because you want an argument. It does not matter. And far too many times we try to get into this place where we try to debate someone into, a, into a, an eternal life with Jesus, and it does not happen. Because faith is absolutely insane. And patience is about, it, it's, it's about understanding compassion for someone else's captivity. Do you not see that, that you're enslaved by your sin? And if you have Jesus, you at least understand that to a level. But if someone who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus... Their sin doesn't look like it's the captor. It just looks like the rest of the world and what we're doing. And I'm not saying to be permissive, but I am saying to be compassionate and understand. And Peter is trying to call out his people and help them to understand this. Jesus had a lot of patience for you. In fact, he spent three years with all those disciples, with just 12 of them, and three of them specific, Peter, James, and John. And still they didn't get it. I don't know about you, but if you've ever spent every waking moment with somebody for three years and you still don't get it, and they love you anyway enough to go to the cross, I'd say that's pretty patient. I don't know about you. I'd say that's pretty patient. The third thing that Peter points out to us as we kind of move forward in this passage of Scripture is that Christ had an attitude and expectancy that he would return. Now, I, I want to ask you this for a second, and especially those of you who are at home, because you have a different mechanism to, buy, to be able to connect with us. Do you actually, and, and, and hear me out, 2020, what else could go wrong, right? actually believe that jesus is really coming back now i mean it i mean if you were to to dig down and, and and really search your soul Do you actually believe that Jesus is really going to come back and he's going to judge the living and the dead and that he's going to declare victory over all things and he's going to put everything back and creation's going to bow and they're going to recognize him as the creator of all things and for those that know him he's going to say come on in and for those who don't he's going to say depart from me I never knew you. Do you actually believe that to be true? It's not a rhetorical question and it's not one that says maybe. It's either a yes or a no and I'm going to be very absolute about that. Because my guess is this, that you're just like all the rest of humanity, is that you're not actually sure it's going to happen, and you're not exactly sure when, but if somebody could just tell me the day, I'd change my life. I'd start acting a whole lot differently if you could tell me Jesus is going to come back after this happens, this happens, this happens, and this happens. I, I watched a deal with Max Lucado a couple of about a month or so ago, and, and somebody asking this question, and Max said something that was really interesting something about the U.S. Geological Society that had, had planned out all the earthquakes from, uh, or had, had tracked them from like 1800 to 1850. And there was like 70 of them. I don't know what the real number is, but it's somewhere around 70. But from 1850 to 1900, the same number of years, there were three times more the number of earthquakes in the world. And, and this is what Max Lucado said, and I really appreciated this. There's a passage in, in the Gospels that says that, that the world will cry out, creation will cry out like birth pains. Now, any of you ladies who've ever had children, you know that contractions, they get closer and closer and closer and closer and more frequent and, and more heavy, right? They get more difficult as, as, as the imminency of birth is coming, right? And this is what Lucado was saying, is that, the, that the, the, the creation is calling out, just like a woman in labor, as those birth pains get closer and closer and more frequent and more difficult. we got more active volcanoes happening right now. We've got more earthquakes happening right now. We have all these things in creation that are pointing towards if Jesus is coming back or not, right? I don't know if that's today or tomorrow. It doesn't matter if you're not ready for him to come back. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, it says, The end of all things is at hand. Now, this is Jesus who is talking to Peter and Peter talking to the rest of, of creation. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. In a minute, I'm going to read another passage to you. But if you're Peter... That verse right there really was hard to write. It had to have been. Because Peter is writing to an audience that's saying, listen, be sober-minded, be patient, be self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. And, and and what he's saying is this. Jesus is coming back, and whether it's today or tomorrow, whether it's the way you think he's coming back, the way you think he's coming back, the way I think it's back, it doesn't matter, he's coming back. And when he does, he's going to judge both the living and the dead. Are you ready for that? The Mayans said it was what, 2012? All these crazy cult groups get out there and they talk about how it's going to happen here and here and here, and then they go back and they refigure their calendars and everything else and we're still here. Y2K was supposed to wipe us out 20 years ago, right? By the way, I, I worked for an electronics company in 2000. And you know what we actually realized after Y2K? That only about 5% of us were actually at risk of not being able to log into the internet at the time. The rest of the world were fine. I mean, 75% of them still cook on wood stoves or outdoors, right? So this is a first-world problem for sure. Let me tell you something. Hell is a real-world problem for everybody. It's a real place, and people are going to go there. And if we don't actually believe that Jesus is going to come back, then that is a fundamental problem, and it's the wrong attitude. And just think for a second. What if Jesus said, okay, I'm going to go die. I'm going to come back to life. It's going to be a pretty cool trick. Y'all are going to like seeing this but I'm not actually going to come back. I'm just going to dangle a string around for all of humanity for 100,000, 2,000 years, whatever the case may be, and I'm just going to have them thinking down there about all the things that could or might or possibly happen. That's not how Jesus operates. Just think, think for a second, if Jesus didn't believe he was actually going to come back from death, would he have gone to the cross? If he had the wrong attitude, his actions would have dictated differently. But he says very clearly that the time is at hand And we have thought for the longest time that we're in the end of days and the last days and who knows when that's going to happen. And if somebody could just be clear with me, if somebody would just give me absolute evidence that I wouldn't need faith anymore, I could just go on empirical evidence out there. And I don't have to believe anything. I can know something. I got news for you. I don't know about you, but truth is more dilated right now or diluted right now in this country than I've ever seen it in my entire life. And humanity does not understand truth outside of themselves. They only stand understand truth within themselves. And so if it's not true without me, then it's just not true. Do you understand that? We're trying to put all of our own little filters in to say that something's only true if I agree with it. If it impacts me positively. Jesus is saying, I'm coming back. The very last words recorded in scripture that Jesus said in Revelation chapter twenty two was, Surely I'm coming soon. When is soon? What does that mean? Is soon tomorrow? Is soon two thousand years ago? Is soon a thousand years from now? I, I like sci fi shows. I like to watch some of those time travel things. I like to see where we're, you know i'm a little bit of an apocalyptic kind of guy because it's kind of interesting how these people are going to survive you know the last handful of humanity lives in a trailer park outside of phoenix and you know that's all that's left and you know i like things like that but, but at the end of the day you're watching people hold on to all these false hopes and all these these fake opportunities that have nothing to do with christ and they're not expected that he's coming back and my guess is that if you really believe that jesus was going to come back first of all then you'd act differently and if you really believe that Jesus was going to come back and judge your sins, you absolutely would act differently. And because I don't get caught today, and because I don't get caught tomorrow, and because I haven't been caught for the last five years, because nobody's found out whatever my sin is or whatever my issue is, because man hasn't exacted his judgment upon me, it must not be true, and I got away with it. I got news for you. It's going to get caught. In fact, all of our sins going to be revealed, whether it be to each other or whether it be to before God Almighty. They're all going to be judged. And if we don't have an attitude of expectancy in the return of Jesus, it actually just pushes away all of our urgency. You see, the return of Christ should actually give us greater confidence, greater cause of action than what it does complacency. Let me take you back to Luther's tree for a minute. If he didn't think those apples were going to be worth eating, whether Jesus did or didn't come back, he wouldn't bother to plant that tree, but he did for whatever reason. Because he said, I'm going to keep loving God, I'm going to keep learning about Him, I'm going to keep submitting myself to the Lordship of Christ, and if He doesn't come back today, then I'm going to have an apple tomorrow. But if He does come back today, I'm not going to need that apple. So many of us don't actually believe that Jesus is coming back, but what would be different if Jesus didn't believe it Himself? Pastor, that's blasphemy. You should be ashamed of yourself for saying that. All I'm saying is exactly what so many people believe to be true or are thinking enough to keep them at least complacent at minimum of doing nothing for the advancement of the gospel, to tell people about the true way that they're going to survive whatever persecution comes, whatever end of the world comes to. Listen, if Jesus did not die, and he didn't conquer death for all of us, and he's not coming back, why are you here this morning? Why are you wasting your time? Why do you make any plans whatsoever? Many a pastor joke and laugh about their retirement fund, and most of us will say, well, retire? Man, a pastor never actually retires. He just dies in the pulpit, and they tell everybody seven years later. All of us make plans for the future, whether it be next week, next year, ten years from now. But if we didn't think we were actually going to get there, why would we even bother to even make preparations for what's going to happen there? As this is nothing compared to the implications of of the reality that Jesus is actually coming back. And he says, if I'm actually going to come back, for you who are about to endure persecution, be sober-minded. Keep your wits about you. Be smart. Be patient in how you love others, showing them to the reality of Christ. The fourth thing that we see in this passage of Scripture is this. Christ had an attitude of extreme eagerness towards the saints. Now, as Peter is beating everybody up a little bit, as I'm beating everybody up a little bit, what Peter is saying, and this is a really important lesson for us, and it may be a challenging lesson for us to see here, but in first Peter chapter four, verses eight through eleven, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. We unfortunately have access to 24-7 news and what you were told yesterday has changed already today and it's the exact same story, but now we're just blaming somebody else. And I have seen and been in and watched and prayed and cried over many, many a times when people missed the the what's supposed to happen inside of church now many people will bring in matthew chapter 6 and they'll bring in galatians and they'll talk about what church discipline looks like and so if somebody does something inside the body of christ then what we should do is we should take them before everybody and just air out all their dirty laundry and we should you know think about excommunicating them if we have to do that because we take sin serious and if we really had the right attitude about sin we wouldn't let a single sinful person into our body right wrong that's not the way it's supposed to work I'm all for church discipline, and I think there's a right way to do so. But what this passage of Scripture right here says to us, and remember the context by which Peter is writing, and he's saying that persecution is going to be coming to you, and when that persecution comes, what's going to happen fast is that your attitudes are going to shift against one another when one of you messes up, instead of being for one another when somebody messes up. And what he says very clearly in verse 8 there is that love covers over a multitude of sins. Now I'm not saying that we need to cover things up but I got absolute news for you that because of the love we have in Christ and the attitude we have for preserving the body in all cases, we don't need to be airing whatever dirty laundry is going on inside the church outside of the rest of the world. It's not a matter of they're not part of the club. It's a matter of they're already persecuting us for doing good righteous things as we saw in chapter 3. Why would we give them ammunition to do more? What it should be a matter of is that we love each other so much that we're not only going to endure whatever's happening within the body, we're going to protect the body at all costs. And we're going to have an earnestness towards the saints. And we're going to watch out for them because we don't know what happened to that person that caused them to make a bad decision today. And we're not going to let it go down as a character thing by throwing them out and letting the rest of the world judge them. We're going to bring them back into the fold. We're going to let love cover over a multitude of sin. We're not going to condone what they did, but we're not going to condemn them for having done it because we don't have a leg to stand on. We're all guilty, each and every one of us. And so what Peter is saying here, which I think is is exactly what's going on in our world right now, is that inside the church, we've got the wrong attitude and we don't have the attitude of Christ. And as this little bit of persecution is happening, we start to turn on and against and not for one another the way we ought to. Instead, we leave them out there for the wolves to get. We push them away, we ostracize, and love covering over a multitude of sins means that we're going to have to have the right attitude to say, you know what, I don't like what you did, and it hurt me. We're all part of one body, and us doing a little self-preservation is important because the rest of this world is going to team up on us, and it's going to get ugly around here. Back in the 80s, the Southern Baptists were were going at each other for a thing about biblical inerrancy, and there's a big, long story that Dr. John Bassanio, who was the pastor at First uh, Houston for a long time, one of the most godly men I've ever had the pleasure of meeting in my life, he had a quote that said something similar to this. He said, as, the, as the, the Baptists were fighting against each other and tearing each other apart, we're watching the denomination split. The largest denomination in the world, by the way, is splitting and going places. Dr. Bassano said this, and I think it applies to every instance right now in the body of Christ, no matter what the situation. He says, brothers, if we don't stop tearing each other apart, the enemy won't have anything to work with. many times i've listened to people pray and i've listened to people will say things about how satan did this or the devil made me do it i got news for you the devil doesn't even need to walk inside this church for our hearts to turn on one another and tear each other apart at the very minimum he just put me whisper in one of our ears and we just need to say sounds like a plan let's do it and what peter is crying out is saying having the attitude of christ and having earnestness towards one another that you're going to mess up, you're human, you're not, on the, you're not on the glorified side of heaven yet. And so until that happens, what you need to do is have the right attitude. You need to cover over, not cover up. You need to deal with those things, just like a family would deal with things inside their own home before they take it to everybody else. Sometimes we go and we ask advice. Sometimes we go and we help people. Sometimes we offer something. Sometimes we're asked into that. That's not the same thing. It's just airing everything out. And in this day and age where social media is absolutely the devil, I believe that with all my heart, that despite all the good things it can do, about reminding us about our child that's someplace in the middle of nowhere or another kid that's over here or a loved one that's doing this or the sale on rebands, whatever that's all about, we just air out things and we don't see the consequences of that we tear one another apart and you watch families and friends and everybody else there's even a function called unfriending can you believe that why would we ever do that in the body of Christ you can't unfriend a family member I get it your family is just as screwed up as mine is welcome to humanity if we don't have patience for the lost then we can't just have patience for the saved that's not what God called us to do what I want you to see this morning is that hope thrives when we have the attitude of Christ. And I want to show you that here in a passage in just a minute to help you understand that the perfect, sinless Lamb of God chose to go to the cross for us so that we might have a living hope, so that we might be called, as 1 Peter 1.3 tells us, we may be caused to be born again to a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so how can we do that? Well, if you're wondering how can we have the attitude of Christ, I'm going to show you one passage of Scripture. That may be hard for us to understand this morning. But here's what we can do. We can pray like Jesus with reverence, expectation, and strength to love God and to love people. I know it's not a big, hard formula. But in verse 7, if you go back and you study anything else from this week's message, you go back and it says, for the sake of our prayers. Peter very clearly says there is strength in prayer and you're losing out on this and you're missing out on this. And you're not utilizing what's happening here. And so how can we have an attitude like Christ? We can pray like Jesus did. We can pray to the point where he was sweating blood. We can pray to the point to where Jesus is out there doing all he can for humanity who doesn't deserve it, who got themselves into this mess by choice and have chosen to ignore him. And for the followers in Jesus Christ, as Peter is writing to specifically, he's saying to adopt the attitude of Christ is not just going to be a wish fulfilled. It's not just going to be if I do this or do that or stop doing this or doing that. He actually puts all of his eggs in one basket and it's prayer. And he does so because he knows exactly what it is to have access to the most powerful weapon in all of Christianity and not use it. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36 through 46. I'm just going to read this for you. I'm not going to put it on the screen. But I want you to remember that when Jesus was talking to his disciples at the Last Supper and as he was spending time with them, he took three people with him, Peter, James, and John, and he said, come with me and let's pray together. And so as Jesus and and the boys were in the garden, it says this in Matthew 26, verse 36 through 46, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Hey, Pete, this is a conversation that Jesus had with him. The devil's asked him to sift you. You know what Jesus said to him? You know what his response was? I'll pray for you. Pete, can you not watch for one hour and pray that you may not be led into temptation? He continues on in verse 41. He says, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again for the second time he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Father, I'm going to have the right attitude about the lost. And again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And so leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later. You see, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. We don't have the attitude of Christ because we don't have the discipline of Christ. It's not because we don't have his deity. It's because even when he was out tempted in the wilderness, he refuted Satan three times with scripture, and he prayed repeatedly over and over and over again. And whenever he would get up early in the morning, he would make sure that he would spend time with the Father in prayer because he knew how important that was. Let me tell you something. When our prayer life is right, our thought life is right, and our actions are right. Many people misquote that passage out of Second Chronicles. If my people who are by my name will humble themselves and pray. I will hear their prayer and I will heal their land. That's a great prayer to have. But let me tell you something. Solomon specifically got an answer in that prayer when he asked God, "What happens if we get into a famine?" And he says, "If my people, those who love me, who call upon me, who know me, who have submitted to me, have found themselves in a famine, not by their own doing or their own cause, will humble themselves and pray. I'll hear their, their prayers and I'll heal their land. I'll specifically do something for them if they'll come back to me." Their thoughts were that we're in trouble and we're going to suffer, but their actions were not that we need to pray. And God said, here's the answer, spend time with me. Spend time in prayer. I don't know how this election is going to turn out. I don't know what's going to happen on the November the 4th or whatever that day is or December whenever they actually decide you know, uncontested whatever the deal is. But I can tell you this, there's going to be a lot of people who call upon the name of the Lord for help. And they hadn't talked to him any other time before then, for not in a long time. Jesus had the right attitude, but his attitude wasn't just something that he mustered up and willed up. His hope, if Jesus really had hope, was found in the trust of, of God himself, but it was found in the renewing each and every day of the relationship with his Father through prayer. And perhaps the greatest weapon that we have, perhaps the greatest tool, the greatest resource, the most inexhaustible thing we can do is talk to God, and yet we choose not to do so on a regular basis. I'm just going to wait until I get myself in such a hole that I can't get myself out of, and then I'll finally turn to God. And if he doesn't do what I want him to do, then he must not be strong enough. Sound familiar? You may not be saying those things out loud, but I can tell you something, your actions as well as mine are exactly the attitude in our hearts. And attitudes shape behaviors. Outlook determine outcomes. And if our outlook is not to look out for God in every opportunity that we get, the outcome's gonna always be the same. We're gonna miss the mark. We're gonna miss the mark. There was Peter, with Jesus, praying, warned, if you would not just spend some time in prayer, you're gonna fall into temptation. A couple hours later three times he denied Christ and it was Jesus that actually had enough compassion on him, had enough mercy for him to call him back forgive him, tell him how he was going to die and ask him to follow him I'm glad Peter did there's a lot about Peter that doesn't make sense in the Bible he was rash and he was fiery he learned the hard way like many of us do But at the very end, Peter's attitude was to love God and to spend time with him. And I think we can see times in Peter's life in Scripture, we can see times in our lives, that when we're not spending time with God, we don't have the attitude of Christ. And we don't have to show the bad attitude because our actions are already telling the story. And when our thought life is right, it's because our prayer life is right. And when our prayer life is right, we don't worry about some of the things we've been worrying about. We don't worry about how things may turn out because we know who wins in the end because there was one who was patient for each and every one of us who loved us. And our hope is made strong in our prayer life. It's renewed each and every day. If we catch ourselves falling back, we need to to catch ourselves falling down and to get on our knees and to pray and to spend time with the Father. How's your prayer life? If I were to be honest with you, when's the last time you prayed for five minutes? If you haven't done it in a while, you're probably not going to do it. You have to build yourself up to it. First, kind of like a muscle. You've got to exercise it a little bit. And if you find yourself in constant trouble, always calling out to God, that's not the muscle that you you need to be building, okay? God loves us. He has hope for us. He's given us all the answers, and he's given us all the tools that we need, each and every one of us, and we're just not spending the time with him we should. And I want to encourage you this week to do so. Let's pray together.